From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. The coming weeks will determine whether the Biden administration can get a handle on the raging pandemic and the economic collapse. Dr. Margaret Flowers gives us the lowdown on coronavirus and vaccines. At a time when we were investing billions of dollars get to private corporations to create these vaccines, there was not the same investment and intention given to developing a mechanism so that the vaccines could be administered. And two days after a right-wing mob attacked the U.S. Capitol, plainclothes police officers 30 miles away shot and killed a 24-year-old black man after chasing him. The family, friends, and community of Kwamina Okran say they won't stop until they get answers and justice. I don't like the fact that you chose my son to stalk and murder. You, you wear a badge and you're supposed to represent the community. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, it's the end of January 2021, and the initial shock and paralysis in Washington after the violent attack on the Capitol on January 6th has given way to a paralysis of a familiar sort. Democrats, voted in by the people to hold all three branches of the federal government, are failing to use that power to enact the agenda of their voters. The bare minimum relief from the economic crisis provided by the Biden administration's proposed $1.9 trillion stimulus package is now threatened with being further diminished. The promise of passage for D.C. statehood or any of the other wish list items that Democrats ran on, which need congressional approval, are now on the butcher's block. Why, you might ask, didn't Democrats win two hard-fought Senate races in Georgia, which, with Vice President Kamala Harris's tie-breaking vote, can deliver Senate majority victories? Well, the breakdown in Congress is because Senate Democrats, led by Chuck Schumer of New York, have so far, as of this broadcast, refused to abolish the filibuster, which will require the Democrats to get 10 Republicans to also vote in favor of these proposed laws. But the filibuster is not a law. It is a procedural rule in the Senate, which of course was not respected when Republicans passed Trump's $1.5 trillion tax cut for the rich. Speaking on CNN, Senator Bernie Sanders urged his party to use the budget reconciliation process and bypass the filibuster to immediately pass the relief package. You just heard Mitt Romney say that Republicans like him have shown that they are ready to compromise. So should Democrats move to pass coronavirus relief with 51 votes if they can't get Republicans support, say, before the impeachment trial? Well, I don't know what the word compromise means. I know that working families are in living today in more economic desperation than since the Great Depression. And if Republicans are willing to work with us to address that crisis, welcome, let's do it. But what we cannot do is wait weeks and weeks and months and months to go forward. We have got to act now. That is what the American uh, people want. Now, as you know, reconciliation, which is a Senate rule, was used by the Republicans under Trump to pass massive tax breaks 
for the rich and large corporations. It was used as an attempt to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and what we are saying is, you use it for that, that's fine. We're going to use reconciliation, that is 50 votes in the Senate plus the vice president, to pass legislation desperately needed by working families in this country right now. You did it, we're going to do it, but we're going to do it to protect ordinary people, not just the rich and the powerful. There are signs that the Democrats may be summoning the will to rescue economic relief from the chopping block. House leader Nancy Pelosi told reporters Thursday that the House will bring a budget resolution to the floor next week. While Schumer said in a speech that next week the Senate would, quote, begin the process of considering a very strong COVID relief bill, end quote. More than 1.2 million Americans made new claims for unemployment for the week ending January 23rd. Meanwhile, the legal and political aftermath of January 6th is proceeding on two tracks. On one hand, there continue to be arrests and charges for the right-wing insurrectionists who violently attacked the U.S. Capitol. U.S. Attorney Michael R. Sherwin said Tuesday at a news conference that nationwide arrests will soon plateau after the 135 arrests already made and that charges of seditious conspiracy are pending against several members of extremist groups such as the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and Three Percenters who may have planned and coordinated to disrupt certification of the election or harm lawmakers. It was also revealed this week by Reuters that the Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio had worked as a longtime informant for the FBI. On the other hand, the Washington Post reported that federal law enforcement officials are debating whether or not to charge the up to 800 rioters who entered the Capitol but did not appear to commit any violence. And what appeared to be an initial effort among some Republicans to distance themselves from Trump has transformed instead into Republicans rallying around Trump, fearing the vehemence of Trump supporters and Trump's threat to start a new Patriot Party. On Tuesday, all but five Republican senators voted for a Rand Paul motion declaring Trump's impeachment to be unconstitutional, mainly citing the fact that Trump is now out of office, not because he did not commit the alleged acts of incitement. Also this week, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy journeyed to Florida to meet with former President Trump to reportedly discuss Republicans retaking the House in 2020. Unlike how Democrats vilify the progressive left wing of their party for advocating social justice policies, Republicans are not censoring far-right QAnon conspiracy theorist Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who claimed a right to bring a Glock onto the House floor, liked a social media death threat against House Leader Nancy Pelosi, and advocated the conspiracy theory that the 2018 Parkland, Florida mass shooting which left 17 people dead at Stoneman Douglas High School, had been faked in order to justify a crackdown on gun rights. Green even followed and shouted at one of the young Parkland survivors, David Hogg, and called him a coward. Despite this record, Republicans nominated Green to sit on the House Education Committee this week. Meanwhile, Trump's fellow seditionists, Representatives Mo Brooks of Alabama and Representative Paul A. Gosar of Arizona 
are starting a campaign to remove Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming from office or from Republican leadership because she joined with Democrats with a vote to impeach Trump. Already, memory of the terror, danger, and implications of January 6th and Trump's role in it are fading. An alternative reality is being created here in Washington and accepted, in which far-right violence is normalized and accepted as misguided but righteous. The former president, his family, allies, and sycophants are emboldened, holding on to the Trump brand no matter how far-right it gets. Trump's former U.N. ambassador, Nikki Haley, told Fox News this week that there is no basis to even impeach Trump. I don't even think there's a basis for impeachment. I mean, the idea that they're even bringing this up, they didn't even have a hearing in the House. Now they're going to turn around and bring about impeachment, yet they say they're for unity. I mean, they they beat him up before he got into office. They're beating him up after he leaves office. I mean, at some point, I mean, give the man a break. On the grounds, geopolitical analyst Professor Gerald Horn considers the structural imbalance in Congress that he says is pulling it farther and farther to the right. The GOP does not turn its back on those to their right, even far to the right. Whereas the Democrats and the MSNBC network, they not only turn their back on those to their left, they oftentimes tend to undermine those to their left. And that introduces a kind of distortion or imbalance in the political uh, discourse, and pay close attention to the remarks by Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, who says that during this congressional term, the Republican caucus is actually far to the right of the Republican caucus of the previous congressional term. I think that she's making reference to these QAnon members who are clearly a danger to their colleagues in the House and the other white supremacists, some of whom went to carry weapons, went to the House floor, uh, which gives resonance to Speaker Pelosi's comment just the other day that there is a, quote, enemy within, unquote, with regard to the U.S. House. Related, the Department of Homeland Security issued a national terrorism alert Wednesday, warning that domestic extremists pose a threat through the coming weeks. The bulletin says that, quote, ideologically motivated violent extremists with objections to the exercise of government authority and the presidential transition, as well as other perceived grievances fueled by false narratives, could continue to mobilize to incite or commit violence. Well, police as well as retired military are among those already under arrest or under investigation in the January 6th attack, and this fact has only underscored what previous investigations have proven, that U.S. law enforcement and military are infiltrated by white supremacists and other right-wing extremists. And this fact, and the comparatively nonviolent way these rioters were handled by law enforcement at the Capitol, puts all cases of police shootings of unarmed people, particularly black people, in sharp relief and in contrast. Just two days after the assault on the Capitol, undercover police officers 30 miles away in Gaithersburg, Maryland, shot to death 24-year-old Kwamina Okran, a roofer and talented car mechanic remembered for his athleticism as a football player in high school. 
Limited information has been released by the Gaithersburg police, who said that officers responded to a tip that Okron had a gun. The officers, who were in plain clothes, not in uniform, were also not wearing body cameras. They said they chased Okron and shot him after he allegedly displayed a handgun. On January 24th, a rally to protest Okron's murder was held at an outdoor amphitheater adjacent to Gaithersburg City Hall. Those attending included Okran's mother, siblings, and friends, student groups, as well as activists with the ACLU and the Silver Spring Justice Coalition. More on the case after headlines. With up to 4,000 Americans dying each day from coronavirus, the Biden administration is starting to take a stronger federal approach to dealing with the pandemic. This week, Biden announced his plan to purchase 200 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines and a plan to give governors a three-week forecast of vaccine allocations rather than the current system put into place by the Trump administration that has left states and cities ill-prepared to plan distribution. Vaccine scandals are brewing around the country, including seniors camping out in long lines, doses being stolen, and in general, this is just another bad result for the country's for-profit health care system and the lack of investment in public health. Chantel James attended a talk this week about the international dimensions of the pandemic. The differences in response to COVID-19 in socialist countries versus capitalist ones are explored in the new book, Capitalism on a Ventilator, The Impact of COVID-19 in China and the U.S. On January 26, some of the anthology's contributors, including Vijay Prashad, Margaret Kimberly, Lee Sui Hin, and Max Blumenthal, participated in a virtual discussion moderated by activist Dr. Margaret Flowers. Prashad talked about key features of response in socialist countries to COVID-19, that led them to experience much less death and sickness from the disease. In Cuba, in uh, Venezuela, Kerala, and in Vietnam, we found the four distinguishing marks of differentiation was that in these countries, governments uh, took the science seriously. They didn't have a hallucinatory attitude towards what the WHO was saying. Uh, Secondly, they had a public sector that they could engage to produce simple things like masks, um, hand sanitizer, and so on, basically to uh, break the chain of the infection. These societies also had public action. You know, in many parts of the uh, bourgeois bourgeois governments reign in, in the capitalist bloc, we see public action essentially commodified through the role of NGOs and so on. But in many of these other societies where there's a socialist process, we see public action. You know, there are uh, political organizations, there are trade unions, women's organizations, student organizations, but also, of course, neighborhood groups and so on. You know, people have a very erroneous attitude of China, believing there's just a state. Uh, There's a great deal of public action, including neighborhood committees. And in Cuba, of course, the committees to defend the revolution Um, The role of public action was very important in breaking the chain of infection. And finally, uh, the fourth distinguishing feature was that in these socialist countries, or at least in these places where there's a socialist project, um, we see the um, importance of internationalism, not a racist response, you know, so that uh, China, Cuba, they export, send doctors overseas. And this is the reason why I'd like you to visit the website of Cuba Nobel. Very important to fight to get the Cuban doctors of the Henry Reeve Brigade 
the uh, Nobel Prize for Peace for this year. Very important. Um, that's half of what I want to talk about. I want to just raise two issues, put them on the table, because the question is asked, how will the Biden administration respond? And, you know, honestly, on these two issues that I want to focus on now, the Biden administration has remained largely silent. Uh, so what are these two issues? One is what I think we should start thinking about as money apartheid. These are going to be two forms of apartheid. This is money apartheid. And the second is the vaccine apartheid. I'd like to put these directly on the table. The book looks at the ways COVID-19 has been weaponized by capitalism against those the state has designated as its enemies, both internally and abroad. The talk was sponsored by the International Action Center, which created the book project in conjunction with the China-U.S. Solidarity Network. It is published by Worldview Forum, based in New York. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. To address the economic crisis caused by the pandemic, one of President Biden's executive orders extended the moratorium on evictions to March 30th. But activists say a moratorium only means that people will still be saddled with back rent and mortgages that they cannot pay. Lydia Curtis has the latest. With 50,000 households in D.C. behind in rent and millions fearful of eviction nationally, a renewed Cancel the Rents action is being launched around the country. In D.C., a car caravan is being organized for Sunday, January 31st, starting at noon at RFK Stadium, Lot 6, and cars will drive through the city demanding that the federal government cancel the rents. In a letter to President Joe Biden, the organizers, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, demands that Biden address this issue by canceling accumulating back rent and mortgage debt so that at the end of the public health emergency, people won't be crushed by debt and lose their housing through eviction or foreclosure. PSL is asking citizens of the DMV to take to the streets on Sunday, January 31st, and join them in the car caravan. I spoke to organizer Sean Blackman. People's livelihoods, the, the right for people to have shelter, is more valuable over than above that of the rights of developers or, or landlords to turn a buck. So we're saying that it's not enough to simply have a moratorium, but that what needs to happen is that the rents need to be canceled outright. Also in D.C., Attorney General Carl Racine announced January 15th that his office would appeal the December ruling by Superior Court Judge Anthony Epstein that a D.C. Council moratorium on eviction filings was unconstitutional. Racine said that during a public health emergency, quote, residents deserve a chance to get back on their feet without the added anxiety from an eviction filing looming over them, end quote. He added that he planned to request a stay in the D.C. Superior Court while the case is being appealed to the D.C. Court of Appeals. The request for a stay will be heard on February the 10th. This is Lydia Curtis for On the Ground. And Thomas O'Rourke continues to follow the impact of the pandemic on teachers and D.C. public schools, which were slated to reopen for in-person learning on Monday, February 1st. In an update to last week's story of a virtual town hall held by the Washington Teachers Union, 
The union participated in a Public Employee Relations Board hearing yesterday called to decide whether D.C. public schools met the terms of a memorandum of agreement it signed with the WTU over the return of teachers to in-person learning assignments. The WTU alleges it has documented some 17 separate violations of the MOA. A decision by the PERB is expected today, and another WTU membership meeting is scheduled for late this afternoon to decide how the union will proceed. Earlier this week, a motion to pursue collective action against DCPS in the event of teachers being forced to return to in-person teaching was overwhelmingly passed by the teachers. One collective action planned is a car caravan protest this Saturday, January 30th, from 12 to 3 p.m., beginning at Savoy Elementary School in Southeast and making its way to the homes of DCPS Chancellor Louis Farabee and Mayor Muriel Bowser in Upper Northwest Washington, with rally stops at or nearby to Watkins Elementary, McKinley Tech High School, and Theodore Roosevelt High School. For On the Ground, this is Thomas O'Rourke. On January 25th, a Global Day of Action for Yemen was held with rallies here and across the United States and world, and an online online rally event attended by thousands around the globe. Organizers including the Yemeni Alliance for Peace, Code Pink, Action Corps, and the Stop the War Coalition highlighted the U.S.-backed Saudi war on Yemen that has led to the death of a quarter million people and created the worst humanitarian crisis anywhere in the world, according to the U.N. They estimate that more than 24 million people in the country, which was already one of the poorest on the planet prior to the war, will need humanitarian assistance in 2021. In front of the Saudi embassy here in D.C., activists spoke out to mark the day. Hey, everybody. Um, I'm Hassan Al-Tayeb. I'm with the Friends Committee on National Legislation. And I'm here as part of a global day of action calling for an end to the Yemen war. Now, with U.S. military support, the Saudi UAE-led coalition's war in Yemen has pushed 16 million people to the brink of famine. A blockade has cut off the flow of food, fuel, medicine, and clean water, and really hurt Yemen's ability to get essential goods into the country. And finally, in culture and media, in this week in history, three dates from Nazi Germany and World War II. On January 30, 1933, Adolf Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany by President Paul von Hindenburg. Members of his Nazi party within weeks staged an arson attack on the German Parliament or Reichstag. This served as a pretext for, quote-unquote, harsh confrontation with and later outlawing the German Communist Party, which was a key step in Hitler becoming sole leader or Führer of Nazi Germany. On January 31, 1943, German troops surrendered at Stalingrad, marking the first big defeat of, of Hitler's armies in World War II. During the five months' battle for the Soviet city, 160,000 Germans were killed and 90,000 taken prisoner, including the commander Friedrich von Paulus, the first German field marshal ever to surrender. 
And on January 27, 1945, the Soviet Red Army liberated the Auschwitz death camp near Krakow, Poland, where the Nazis had systematically murdered an estimated 2 million persons, including 1.5 million Jews. In film, movies with a distinct message about history, social justice, and resistance are strong contenders as the annual awards season gets underway, with the Golden Globe nominations on February 3rd. The trial of the Chicago 7 centered on protesters at the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago, one night in Miami, portraying a meeting between Muhammad Ali, Sam Cooke, Jim Brown, and Malcolm X, has some buzz. Nomadland, about the economic realities of working people and homelessness in the U.S., will be competing with the February release, Judas and the Black Messiah, about Fred Hampton, head of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, who was assassinated in a police raid in 1969. Here is a portion of a trailer for Judas and the Black Messiah. Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Repeat after me. Looking at 18 months for the stolen car, five years for impersonating a federal officer, or you can go home. The Black Panthers are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color. Their aim is to sow hatred and inspire terror. I will learn all that I can. I will learn. These ain't no terrorists. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder liberation. You can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom. And Hollywood lost an icon on Thursday when actress Cicely Tyson joined the ancestors at the age of 96. Accolades are pouring in from all around the world from those inspired by Tyson's pioneering work in the movie Sounder and the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman and her more recent work on the television series How to Get Away with Murder. Earlier this week, HarperCollins published Tyson's new memoir, which is titled Just As I Am. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Let it be. 
Okay, I want to introduce Mrs. Melody Cooper. She's going to be talking about Kwamina's life and his legacy. I want to say thank you for supporting my son Kwamina, which is my youngest of five children I had. I had four sons. Kwamina was my youngest son. The name Kwamina is uh, from Ghana. Kwamina actually became a king when his father passed three months ago in Ghana. They, their family had mansions and things to that effect. When Kwamina was born, they had an algae for him, and I, I'm not familiar with that because I'm not from Ghana. And that means that people from all over the country, mostly Africans and especially the Fonte tribe, to honor Kwamina, and it lasted from 8 in the morning to 4 in the morning the next day that the prince was born because his grandfather was the king. And then his father passed in October, and Kwame and I was supposed to be taking his grandmother to Africa so he can claim his rights. But his grandmother died that Monday, and he was murdered that Friday. Uh, Kwame and I was very intelligent. Um, there were more people that liked him that, than the ones that didn't. And as far as those officers go, they actually had some issue with my son um, prior to them murdering him. But I'm not going to discuss that. But I will discuss, I am tired of someone that takes an oath to uh, protect and serve the community and use it as a hate crime. I don't appreciate the fact that these grown adults, I will not even label them men, because when they look in the mirror, I'm sure they don't see what you call a man. Because what I see in the aspect of those four individuals are a pack of coyotes. Because why would you stalk a child and then shoot him in his back you were you were waiting for him five hours just to murder my son. But there's going to be justice. Yes. And this is going to be the beginning of their end because I will be Kwamina's eyes, ears, mouth. I feel sorry for all the families that I see that I don't know, that I've watched the police kill because a lot of these people that these police are killing are just black people. They don't care. They just want to try to um, eliminate our race. And I don't like the fact that you chose my son to stalk and murder you, you wear a badge and you're supposed to represent the community. You need to be locked up. You need to be taken out of the community because you, you four are going around harassing and terrorizing the community. They need to get rid of you. But guess what? 
Y'all going to pay for Kwamina's life because whether you're an officer of the law or not, murder is murder. And there's no other way to put it. He didn't have a gun. He wasn't a threat to not one person. You knew you set my son up just so you can murder him. But just, just know this. From this point on, Kwamina's name is going to remain in your head. And I pray to God that he always shows you his vision of my son in your whatever type of mood you're in. It doesn't matter if you're awake or asleep. I hope that my son haunts you for the rest of your life. Because how do you think you could be a man to shoot a child in the back multiple times? And then we're not even going to say how he got shot in the front. Because if all of y'all were shooting from the back, how did he get shot in the front? We know. And guess what? I know, too. And you're going to pay for everything that you've done to me and my family. My son has sisters that miss him, brothers that miss him, cousins, nieces and nephews. He was well-loved in the community. There were, like I said, more people that liked him than the ones that didn't. So basically, I'm glad that you guys are here to protest against the hate crimes that the police continue to do. Say his name. Say his name. Say his name. Bless the Lord. We thank each and every one of you all for coming out and spending this time uh, with Miss Cooper and Carmina's family. Thank you for uh, all of the signs that we see. As I look out over the crowd, I see Black Lives Matter. I see Close the Street Crimes Unit. I see defund the police. I see justice for Carmina. My name is Brian McDaniel. I'm the attorney for the family, Miss Cooper and Mr. Carmina, Oprah. And we are here to demand justice for Carmina. You all are out here is a testament to the fact that Carmina's life matters. That he was black, that he was male, that he was young, did not disqualify him from humanity. That you saw in your eyesight a young black man uh, does not mean that you are entitled to use force beyond the force that you are entitled to use. Does not mean that you are allowed to put Pamina in a position where you could then create a narrative that, uh, that justified the taking of his life. We are here to demand that the city council, that the chief of police, and all those dignitaries who occupy this office and others in Montgomery County, make sure and ensure that the investigation into Palmina's death is fair and that it is transparent. What it is that is done in the dark will come to light. My Bible says that uh, uh, that weeping may endure for a night, but that joy will come in the morning. And so we're here to claim on today that we are demanding that the investigation into this shooting be transparent, that all those witnesses that you, test, uh, that you interviewed be identified, 
and that all of the information and the reports from these officers involved in this shooting be released and released now. We're not only asking... Ms. Cooper is not only asking for transparency, but she's also asking for equal treatment. If it was that an African-American man was charged or even uh, alleged to have committed a crime of murder after an investigation, if it, if it should be found that he was responsible for that shooting, there would be no probation. There would be no uh, termination of their employment. There would be a, a trial. Yes, sir. In the circuit court for uh, Montgomery County and after that trial and conviction, that individual would be subject to decades of, of time in jail. Yes, sir. And so if it is that we find after this investigation that these officers are uh, responsible for the wrongful shooting of Cormina, we want them charged yes. and we want them to be incarcerated. Not only does Ms. Cooper want transparency, not only does she want equal treatment under the law, she also wants transformation. We want this police force to be changed. Yes, sir. It does not make any sense that officers who are charged with investigation into firearms and guns would be the only officers on the force not required, not required, to wear body-worn camera. And so it is on today that Ms. Cooper is asking that the legislation enact law requiring any and all officers who are going to wear a firearm on their side to be outfitted with body-worn cameras. This, so that the family and the public knows that you cannot create your own narrative, that you cannot come out and allege that someone had a firearm in support of your contention that you needed to kill them, that you cannot come out with your own story suggesting that someone turned and threatened you when in fact they did not, just so that you can justify these shootings. It is imperative that each and every officer who has the ability and the right to wear firearms, not only in Montgomery County, not only in the DMV, but all across this nation, be required to wear body-worn cameras while they're on duty. Yes, sir. And so we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your voices. We thank you for your power of protest and ask that you would continue to remember Kwamina continue to remember all of those black bodies who have been taken in the name of law enforcement in this country. I ask you again, say his name. Say his name. Say his name. Thank you. And that was the January 24th rally to protest Kwamina Okran being shot to death by Gaithersburg plainclothes police officers. The shooting happened on January 8th, two days after the assault on the U.S. Capitol by white supremacists and other right-wing extremists. Those attending included Okran's mother, siblings and friends, 
the family's attorneys, student groups, as well as activists with the ACLU and the Silver Spring Justice Coalition. The demands of organizers include release basic facts about the shooting, including reports that Okran was kicked after being shot and killed by police. They also want information about exactly what report led officers to stop Okran in the first place. Can't hold me down, there's no gravity in my universe Those rules don't exist to me, you don't believe me You can search, feeling bittersweet Now it's cavities in your tooth that hurts Cause it doesn't work when you're grabbing me Trying to pull me down The earth backstabbing me as I prove my worth If you bite in my style, then who was first? If you bite in my dust, then who was first? Geek down, trying to act wild, don't make it worse I speak the truth when I spit, call it a naked verse St. John, when I spit, let me take you to church uh. Amen, amen, trying to intimidate me, and you just amen, and you dealing with an ill super saiyan, with a wide vision in the game plan, call that full brain, John Illa J, yeah, see that's my full name, Great minds on steroids, that's my full swing, and I'm my ghetto superstar. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital, I'm Esther Ivarum. With up to 4,000 Americans dying each day from coronavirus, the Biden administration is starting to take a stronger federal approach to dealing with the pandemic. This week, Biden announced his plan to purchase 200 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines and a plan to give governors a three-week forecast of vaccine allocations rather than the current system put into place by the Trump administration that has left states and cities ill-prepared to plan distribution. With me to give us an update on COVID-19 in the U.S. is Dr. Margaret Flowers. She's a pediatrician and veteran human rights activist who co-founded with her late partner, Kevin Zeese, the movement organizing website, Popular Resistance. She also hosts the show Clearing the Fog on Pacifica Radio and has been on the front lines of local, national, and international campaigns for health care, economic, and environmental justice. Welcome back to the show, Margaret. Thank you for inviting me, Esther. I should also mention in our headlines today, we included your participation in the Capitalism on a Ventilator book project. So congratulations on that. Thank you. But for this segment, I, I first wanted to get your reaction to the debacle in distribution. There are some scandals brewing in my hometown, Philadelphia. Apparently, you know, a lot of these scandals involving elderly people really not getting the services and the care that they signed up for. In general, it just seems like a, just another bad result for this country's healthcare system and the lack of investment in public health for a crisis like this. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the United States has been disinvesting in its public health system for years, and we don't actually have a healthcare system. As most people would think of a system, you know, like a single body that's coordinated and makes decisions, we don't. We have a very patchwork type of a situation that doesn't communicate well with each other, and we didn't have a national strategy on this, you know, handling the COVID-19 pandemic for quite a long time, and so you know, at a time when we were investing billions of dollars get to private corporations to create these vaccines, there was not the same investment and intention given to developing a mechanism so that the vaccines could be administered. And so it was the federal government turned it over to the states, the states turned it over to the counties, the counties didn't have the resources. We're seeing all kinds of problems. As you mentioned, I was just reading 
that a Washington State hospital sent an email to its donors inviting them to get the vaccine and then was forced to apologize when that was exposed that they were prioritizing their donors. Yeah. So, um, you know, this is really a fundamental public health tool. We need to get these vaccines out to people, and it's just a really tragic situation that it's not happening in a coordinated and smooth way. Well, when I did my year-end special, I included our interview we did that you and I did last year, and it was around March at the beginning of what was known to be the crisis here in the U.S., and I was surprised that really the interview stood up like for the whole year because nothing really fundamentally had changed by December in terms of the response of the government. So in looking at the current debacle around the vaccinations, it seems like the U.S. has never attempted to circle back and fix the issue of lack of testing that we talked about like almost a year ago. And this same problem, a lack of testing plus lack of education, is lingering right now to affect the vaccination program. So, for example, is it true that you should not take the vaccine if you have had COVID? And then if that's true, is the reason because you already have immunity to COVID and don't need the vaccine, or is it because you might have a bad reaction to the vaccine because uh, if you take it and you've already had COVID? So it is not true that if you've had COVID, you shouldn't get vaccinated. In fact, if you even if you've had COVID, you should still get vaccinated, to say it in a more positive way. Experience with viruses like COVID-19, coronavirus viruses, is that the immunity doesn't last that long to them. It can be a matter of months. And also the antibody tests that have been done on populations have shown that I think around a quarter of people don't form a lasting response even after they've had COVID. So they don't have lasting immunity after they've had the disease. And so it's really important that everybody get vaccinated. That's the best way. And and, and recognizing that even the vaccines are not 100% effective at preventing people from getting the disease. They do seem to be very effective at preventing people from getting severe disease, but everybody should get vaccinated. And and even with the vaccines, you know, we're going to have to wait and see how long that immunity lasts and whether people are going to need more than just the one booster after their first dose. I was already ready to ask another question, but then when you said wait and see, it just reminds me of the fact that I've started to feel like the rollout of the vaccine is still in the test phase. You know, maybe because the vaccine was approved in such a short time. But, you know, we keep hearing stories. I think just on Thursday, Germany announced that they're not going to give, they're recommending that no one over 65 take the AstraZeneca vaccine. There were deaths of elderly, very elderly people in Norway, I believe, after taking it, after Hank Aaron died, after receiving the vaccine. Uh, His story was coupled with some other stories coming out of California around people receiving the vaccine and dying. And so with the fact that people are, there are some people already very reticent about the vaccine, you know, what are you, you know, what's your take on this, these new developments? And, you know, are we, are we still like being tested on in a, in a sense with this vaccine? I mean, the reality is that, you know, this is an unprecedented situation. You know, we have over 430,000 people in the United States that have died 
from COVID-19. It's a new virus. We're still learning about it. There's a new study coming out of the United Kingdom that shows that even people who have recovered from COVID-19 down the road are dying from complications that, you know, it causes on their bodies, heart disease, liver and kidney disease. So this is a very serious situation, and that's why the vaccines have been, you know, fast-tracked to try to get them out quickly to try to get a handle on this. You know, the technology that the United States is using in Pfizer and Moderna is a new technology, uh, so not a lot is known about that. And so it's a situation where the virus is new. We're still learning about that. They rush the vaccines to try to get a handle on it, but you know, normally vaccine production and testing takes years and years. That's just not a luxury that exists right now. So I don't know if you, I would look at it as people being guinea pigs so much as <laughs> just being in a really an unusual situation. And yeah, so I think that you know it's important also to remember that everything in medicine pretty much has a risk. You take a medication, you could have an adverse reaction to it. You could take a, you know, have a surgery. There's a possibility with every surgery of a, of a complication. That's just the nature of dealing with human bodies. And so, you know, there are going to be bad reactions to vaccines. That, that happens with many vaccines. But if you look at the big picture of how many lives are going to be saved once we achieve a level of immunity that stops the spread of the disease... Everything in medicine is a risk-benefit type of a situation. And mm-hmm. so, you know, even though there's some risk with the vaccine in the bigger picture, more lives are going to be saved because of it. There are also questions around vaccines made with messenger RNA, this new technology, and those vaccines that aren't made that way. So, you know, a lot of people feel that they're not given a right to question this new technology without being labeled as an anti-vaxxer. It's true that the mRNA vaccines, this is the first time that mRNA has been used for vaccines. And of course, people have the right to question and they should, you know, take the time to look and make sure that they feel comfortable, you know, with what they're being given. But the reality is that, you know, we have peer-reviewed articles on safety in the New England Journal of Medicine, looking at data of over 20,000 people who received the vaccine and there were similar side effects to what we see in other vaccines. Now we've had, you know, tens of millions of people that have received the vaccine and, you know, there have been some cases of things like allergic reactions, which can happen with vaccines, but, you know, we're not seeing anything there that's alarming. So I think that, you know, folks shouldn't be too worried about this vaccine. Yeah. So even though it was produced in record time, there were these peer reviewed studies and articles outside of the FDA process that people may not trust. Right. Yeah. There are people that got a hold of the data so that they could do an independent analysis of it and then have that, you know, published. And it's, you know, and it's still an ongoing situation. Uh, I mean, it's true that this is still a new vaccine and it's still being monitored, but so far things look good. What if people in the U.S. want to wait for a vaccine available without messenger RNA? And I mean, I ask this because there are vaccines from other countries that don't have this new technology, and those vaccines seem to be effective also. 
Right. There are vaccines from other countries, from Russia, from China, that use more traditional technology of either using an inactivated form of the virus or using adenovirus as a platform to get to get the body you know, to, to have a reaction. They, they have the gene to make the protein and the body forms an immune reaction to that. I think the good news is that Johnson & Johnson has an adenovirus vaccine that is currently being reviewed and may be licensed soon. And so that should be available in the United States for folks who don't feel comfortable with the mRNA technology. Okay. So I also had a question about whether it's called therapeutic plasma. I was just happened to be listening to the radio one day and they were seeking volunteers. Like if you had COVID and you've recuperated, you know, from COVID, they want, you know, to use your plasma. So I'm thinking like, okay, well, then, you know, I, I guess based on what you just said uh, earlier, this is just, a, this would just be a temporary um, benefit to a person. It wouldn't be like a cure, but it just, you know, hearing that commercial, a lot of people would think, well, if, if my plasma could heal somebody, that means that I must be, you know, in good shape, you know, that I have some immunity, but you're saying that's not the case. Well, I'm saying that we just don't know how mm-hmm. long, you know, there's some people don't form a lasting response to it. And we don't know for people who do form, you know, an, an immune response to the COVID-19 virus that causes COVID-19, an immune response that would protect them. We don't know how long that protection is going to last. And I think in the, you know, early on when we were seeing such high numbers of deaths, you know, related to the cases that existed at that point, people were just really trying all different kinds of things to try to figure out what would work. And it has been something that's been used in the past as if somebody has an infectious disease giving them the plasma of someone who's already recovered from that disease helps in you know sometimes to help them recover from a serious illness so uh we can all do we can uh see our doctor see you know see a medical professional you know those of us many of us don't have a doctor but we can you know perhaps go to a clinic and go do whatever we can do to take care of ourselves (laughs) yeah all right well i've been speaking with Dr. Margaret Flowers, thank you for joining me today, Margaret. Thank you so much, Esther. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Special thanks to Chantel James, Thomas O'Rourke, and Lydia Curtis for their contributions to the show. At onthegroundshow.org, you can check out all of our current and past shows, contact us, and support us. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow to support us and also to like us on Facebook and Twitter at onthegroundshow. Our new podcast, On the Ground with Esther Ivarum, that's On the Ground, W. Esther Ivarum, is available on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcasts, our social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included Freedom by Jurassic 5 and Can't Hold Me Down by Miles Davis and Robert Glasper featuring Illa J. And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Mr. Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. 
And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end-of-the-year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.